Welcome to the Stories We Don't Tell, a podcast about storytelling. So this is the Stories We Don't Tell podcast. Yes, it is. It is that, but it is a special edition of the Stories We Don't Tell podcast. Can I ask you a question? Is it Stories We Don't Tell or The Stories We Don't Tell? Uh, that has been an ongoing question, even in my own mind. Oh, okay. Yeah. Have you have you come up with a consistent nomenclature? I usually go back and forth depending on the uh, the usefulness of, of how to have the in there. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to say depending on how you feel. Oh, no. 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 It entirely has to do with sentence structure. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. I think that makes sense. But uh, anyways, we're not here to talk about whether uh, it's the or not. Uh, we're here to talk about stories of home. Yes. Uh, which uh, was an event that we threw, well, at time of recording last week, uh, yes. but for anyone listening to this at any point in the future, uh, November 22nd, uh, during National Housing Week. Uh, and at the, and I'd say that at the behest, uh, but uh, is probably not, is, is not fully accurate, maybe within partnership uh, with Evergreen uh, in regards to, the, so they are part of their programming for National Housing Week. Mm-hmm. So this is the uh, second, so... I believe they have done this National Housing Week, which we'll uh, explain about in a second, for about four years, I want to say. I think four years is correct. Four years. And we actually did this event. This is the second year in a row that we've done this event uh, because it uh, was somebody that came uh, through you. What? How did this come about? Yeah, well, Evergreen was looking for a way to expand the programming available for National Housing Week. So National Housing Week historically has been uh, all about or has, been, has really focused on people who are into the policy around housing and home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so this this was sort of a an attempt on, on their part to to diversify the types of events and, and people who might be involved in National Housing Week. Mm-hmm. Obviously, last year, National Housing, during that week, there was the large annou- announcement of the couple billion dollars coming from the federal government in regards to housing. Uh, and so they were trying to, you know, find a way to get to the public. Uh, and, and they sort of saw this idea of a storytelling event as a, as a way into there. And uh, I have to I have to say that uh, I don't want to speak for both of us, but I, I, at least, I mean, last year was was fantastic. This year was was great and and you know we do our stories we don't tell almost every month but we also are always looking for opportunities to kind of be involved in other projects to lend our skills at uh putting events together and like creating this sort of helping to create other platforms where people you know that that maybe you don't hear from uh as much or you know just new kind of uh, uh voices that are that have something very important to say and um, this is just was the exact perfect kind of event that I love being a part of because it was just so impactful and uh, you know it was funny. There were people crying at times. It just kind of ran the gambit of uh, emotions. I think. Yeah, to be given the opportunity to be able to meet all these people and then and then and then the luxury of working with them is is truly uh, was a, a blessing, really. Yeah, uh, and and one that would not be available sort of without the, the larger framework that it, that. It, that it came into, mm-hmm. um, and and then of course the 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 sort of other the sub partners that also uh, t- should get shouts as well. We di- it was hosted in Center for Social Innovation, uh, and then hosted by Anita Lee of the Discourse, uh, which does something also quite aligned with this whole conversation, which is around community based journalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the show post will include a link to that as well, so you can sign up for their newsletter uh, or, or learn more about them. 
and really just thanks to everyone involved for making this possible because it was just a wonderful experience to get to be a part of. And, and you know, I just want to follow up with what you're saying about the people that were involved. So you're going to hear all five stories. Uh, you know, the recordings, because it's a live event, it was uh, some things were recorded on the fly. There's uh, some of them are just a better quality recordings than others just to let you know but it's so i think it, it was just so important for us to include all of the stories because you know i totally agree is that working with everybody uh that performed in and meeting them and getting to know them and and uh working together really on this event uh it was really just a, a incredible experience and uh so we so thank everybody that came because they like all totally brought it yeah totally yeah and, and as a, one last thing, also, uh, just as a plug, I don't know if we have, anyone actually mentions My Toronto during their stories, uh, but they were quite important in they are have, selling calendars uh, and, and other things. So check out My Toronto as well, because they do some great work. Yes, and we two of the speakers uh, actually were, we, we got connected through My Toronto, and they're, they're actually were, they were able to sell some calendars and, and greeting cards at the event, which is great. Um, but... Other than that, what else did we did? We cover everything. I think we've covered. We, we never. I think you can Google National Housing Week to find out exactly what that's all about. Uh, there'll be an, another one next year, I'm sure. Uh, and I think honestly, the the stories speak for themselves. Yeah, and and what is so great uh, for us is to be able to present these stories because we just love this event so much, and we want to. Hopefully, we'll do it. Be doing it again in the future, and we're just really trying to get as many people to come and check it out as possible. So. Yeah, here they are. Here they are. As I sat at the bar counter looking around, I felt my nerves at an all-time high. I was waiting to speak with someone about the for rent sign that I saw in the window outside. To be honest, my expectations for the whole situation were not high. Too many times prior to this, I found, I'd found myself in the same situation waiting to speak with someone about a place to rent that ended up falling through. Sorry guys, I'm a little nervous. Uh, we love you already. <laughs> <laughs> that falling through in one way or another. I was generally tired, better yet exhausted with the whole process. Nonetheless, I was greeted by the landlord and I called my daughter so he could show us a one bedroom apartment five minutes away. Within a few seconds of being in the unit, my daughter and I both knew that we had finally found our new home. It was a true sense of relief and happiness. I remember feeling a wave of calmness overtake me as I reflected back on the past six months that had been filled with deep-seated frustration and an abundance of uncertainty as we searched relentlessly for housing. I exhaled deeply, <clears throat> pardon me, and looked at the smile on my daughter's face. We were finally about to start our new journey together. Six months prior to this, my daughter, a full-time college student, and myself had begun our search for an apartment in Toronto. We'd been living in Barrie for many years and decided it was finally time to move back to Toronto. Boy, were we in for a surprise. 
While we did know that rent in Toronto was more expensive than Barrie, we've been gone from the city for so long that the changes we discovered utterly shocked us. We were looking for a two-bedroom apartment and quickly discovered that rent in the city had skyrocketed so high that our income combined would most often only cover a bachelor unit or in a rundown apartment that without a doubt compromised our mental and physical health. Nonetheless, we never gave up. As each week, we would take the gold bus into the city and venture around trying to find our new home. The large majority of places we saw that met our requirements were either out of our price range or contingent on credit rent check that we could not pass. On the flip side, on the flip side of the places that we could afford, the majority of what we could be said was about them very undesirable. A few places in particular will forever remain clear in memory. It seemed for some reason that many of the landlords we interacted with had a very low regard for their tenants. This was beyond obvious. For instance, when we were shown one apartment in particular, it was above a store in a neighborhood known to be dangerous. Sure, it looked fine and livable inside. That is until my daughter saw a dead cockroach floating around in the toilet bowl. And some minutes, some minutes after, opened the fridge door to discover about 10 live and very active cockroaches running all over the place. Instead of being shocked like we both were, the landlord's expression was blank and he essentially tried to play it off and make, make it seem like we didn't just see an obvious infestation. Similar to this, another place that we could afford yielded similar results. It was also in the neighborhood that was not safe, and in particular, this building had a poor reputation and several broken windows at the main entrance. Nonetheless, due to our desperation, we decided to look at the unit. It was very large and spacious and had great lighting. It was even a two-bedroom, which was perfect, and there was even two bathrooms. That's nice. The catch, it had recently been sprayed and dead cockroaches lined the entire perimeter of the unit. Not only were we shocked at the amount of dead bugs that surrounded the walls, but we were even more disturbed at the fact that the landlord didn't even make, didn't even make an attempt to clean them up. We left feeling defeated. This was probably the 20th place that we had seen and it appeared that that the same narrative was replaying itself over and over. If you are poor, then you essentially are not entitled to a place of average standards. As we left the building and walked down the street, my daughter and myself were overcome with frustration. Frustration with the reality of our income, frustration that we could not pass credit checks for the places that we actually wanted, and essentially frustration with every aspect of this entire process that at times felt like a nightmare in many ways. Of course, all of these emotions took on a toll on us. While we waited for the bus, we began arguing. 
something that had been reversing for her after every place we saw that either did not meet our standards or was financially out of our reach. Some minutes later, the bus came and we continued to argue. As we got on, our volumes continued to escalate. And we were so fed up, so fed up with everything that we didn't even care that everyone on the jam-packed bus was watching us. Deep down, we knew that we were not actually upset with one another, but the pent-up frustration we had been holding onto leaked out of us regardless. We argued here on the bus in front of countless strangers. We argued the week prior on the street and parted ways due to feelings of defeat. We even argued some weeks after this to the point that we didn't even speak for days. Here we were trying to start a new chapter in our lives together and the whole process was so difficult that it felt as if we were less connected now than we had ever been before. This eventually led us to the idea that maybe we weren't going to be able to find what we were looking for and would have to rent rooms separately. My daughter began looking for places and felt additionally concerned. She was shown rooms without windows, places where the landlords wanted to do her laundry. Creepy. And control her, whoever she had over. And even places where she felt like she was in danger and needed to leave immediately. Once again, the places she was shown that met her standards were simply out of her financial capabilities as a full-time college student working part-time as a server and a bartender. From this, we realized that regardless of whatever, we were stronger together than apart. We were determined to work through any obstacles that came our way, and we figured that regardless, something had to take. We knew that the bond we had could not be broken by the hardships we were experiencing. We knew deep down that we needed to find strength in one another, and that's exactly what we did. From May 2012 until to November 2012, our future was uncertain and scary. That is, until I saw that rent sign outside of the bar and walked in to inquire about the said unit in question. While the six-month process was one of great struggle and concern, it certainly ended on a happy note. The man from the bar showed us our perfect place. And while it was only a one-bedroom apartment, I was beyond willing to sacrifice my space needs and sleep on the couch so my daughter would have the opportunity to pursue university and break the cycle of poverty. To boot, he didn't require us to do a credit check. That's kind of cool. Or provide references. Once we gave him the first and last month's rent, the apartment was ours, and the rest is history. I truly believe that this experience brought my daughter and I closer together and gave each of us a newfound appreciation for one another. We grew, grew closer than ever living in this apartment together, and I am beyond grateful for this as despite the small space we were working with, we made it our home and flourished individually as a team. Thank you.
Hi, I'm nervous too. Um, I was going to start with a poem, but instead I'm going to read the poems I brought at the end. And I also brought some art behind me. If anyone's interested in buying it, I'll cut a really great deal. <laughs> there are between five and 10,000 people in Toronto who are currently homeless. The shelter systems are full. Respite and out of the cold programs are band-aid solutions that the government uses to keep marginalized people from dying. And yet there are still homeless deaths in summer and winter. Mental health issues abound. My story starts a long time ago in Winnipeg. Where I, when I was in foster care after being removed from my indigenous family, I was abused and neglected in foster care, but I was lucky enough to survive and be put in a home full of loving parents and sisters. I was adopted by them at the age of seven. They were middle class and fundamental Christians, and when I had my first mental health breakdown at 17, they thought I was either possessed or on drugs. I was not, however, but I was naive. And I got married far too young. My first real experience of homelessness was being afraid of being in my apartment with my spouse. I would voluntarily stay at the psychiatric ward in Winnipeg so not to be abused. I also went to college, helped my adopted parents raise my daughter, and I grew into a creative human being that you see today. But I also stayed in that abusive relationship far longer than I should have. But when I moved to Toronto, I first lived with my birth family in Brampton, but I had problems adapting in Brampton and I moved to downtown Toronto. At first I stayed at 60 Richmond, which was a co-ed shelter and always very busy. But then I was put on ODSP and was given supported housing at Fred Victor. This was in 1997. In 1999, I made a big mistake, I, but it was for a good reason. I went back to Winnipeg to be there to be part of my first granddaughter's life. She was born in January of 2000, and I worked and helped take care of her, my daughter, and the father of the baby. But my spouse was still abusive, and there were other problems. So I moved back to Toronto in 2002, and once again, I found myself in supportive housing at Fred Victor. This was a few years before it was renovated, and it was a crowded, volatile place to live. I ran away and became homeless again. I stayed at Friends. I would go to shelters. I slept in the park in April. Eventually, I moved into my current roommate and partner's small room in a rooming house, and we moved into a market rent bachelor apartment in Parkdale, and then through streets to homes, got a one bedroom in Parkdale and eventually got a two-bedroom apartment in Scarborough, where we fought with a bedbug problem for five years. Eventually, I ran away and lived in shelters and a rooming house, and then I got housing back at Fred Victor after the renovation. And the changes there that had improved, but then there was some more volatile situations there. When the Toronto Housing Access Pilot Project was offered to myself and my roommate, 
we moved into a two-bedroom subsidized market rent apartment with a variety of different problems and issues. We had rodents this summer, and they were not mice. We had ra raccoons that keep us awake and other fun experiences. But at least I have a home and people that I can share it with. I'm going to read, I'm going to read some poems now. The first one is called I Am Not Homeless. And I wrote this for the, uh, my Toronto launch. And I think it is so appropriate for tonight too. I am not homeless at this moment. I struggle with day-to-day -day life, a part-time job, debt, an empty bank account, sometimes an empty belly. I am not homeless. Life is never perfect. There are rodents gnawing at my walls and bugs from some alien world, raccoons playing in the garbage. When I was homeless, I stayed at my friend's house, shared a couch with his dog, and I would walk his dog sometimes. I stayed in shelters when, where someone hit me in the face because I snore. I am not homeless, and I never want to be again. The chances are high that everyone around you knows someone who has been without a roof, without comforts that even I take for granted. I need to remember I'm grateful for a full tummy, clean clothes, and someone to share time and love with because it would feel like being homeless if I were all alone. The next poem I have is called Where I Am From, and it's about growing up in, in Winnipeg. I am from days of endless possibilities, of endless blue sky, of endless fields of corn, canola, and mustard seed, and wheat as far as the eye can see. I am from nights of endless wonderment, of endless stars, planets, galaxies, and the beautiful moon that tortures my hormones. I have survived near death, abuse at the hands of loved ones, and the intense sorrow of being inside the psychiatric system. But always I have hope in my heart, my soul, my head. I am from broken dreams fastened together with the agony of knowing that there is no cure for poverty and loneliness, only the hope that I will be heard, I will be loved. Sorry. I am the product of DNA, of mystery and magic. I am from parents and education, so I value every lesson I was taught. I try hard to be loving, humble and stoic and brave, yet the tears I cry can be an ocean. I am from one infinite moment. I am never to be forgotten. I am from here, this wonderful, frightening, lost world of ours. I am from here, this wonderful, frightening, redeemed world of ours. I am from you, a reflection of all that is unique. I am a unique particle of God's vast creation. And if, if, if you don't mind, I have one more poem I could read, or if that's enough. Okay, it's called Nothing Fits. I am too poor to pay attention. I have no new clothes. Nothing fits in my closet. Nothing fits in my thoughts. I don't get to say what's on my mind. I can't remember everything I do day to day. 
Nothing fits in my heart. Nothing fits in my soul. My loneliness is not yours. My illness isn't either. You can't cure me by passing me by, but you don't notice if I live or die. Nothing fits in my soul. Nothing fits, I feel too old. My art and thoughts are my friends. Poets are the ones who watch and wait. But often poets are just too late to change your mind. Do you have change for me? I don't want it for much. I just am poor. So nothing fits of my clothes. Some are too big, others too old. Nothing fits in my imagination. I stand on the fault line between being old and not noticed. No one sees me on the streetcar unless I'm crying or I piss myself. Then I'm embarrassed because nothing fits to change into. Nothing fits, I feel sad. Nothing fits, but still I'm glad. I'm free enough not to judge anyone but myself. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. I would like to welcome you all, and thank you for being here today. Today, my story is about finding a new home in a new country. Before I tell you about my new home, let me tell you about my old home. I hope you guys can hear me, right? OK. So I'm immigrant, like a lot of people in Toronto. And I came uh, back home. I had a decent lifestyle. <coughs> but that decent lifestyle didn't come so easily. I had a hard childhood because my dad is a laborer, mom is a housewife, we are in the poverty line. But I had a determination come out of that and I am very good at doing exams. So thanks to free education in my country and help of some people, I completed my university exams and landed in a good job. I became a daughter who makes my parents' dream come true. So after working in five years, I feel like my life is monotonous and boring. I wake up in the morning, go to work, come back, sleep. Again, wake up in the next day. It's pretty boring life, right? <laughs> Nothing exciting. So uh, I was thinking, OK, what should I do? I thought, OK, let me change my job. So it will give me some fun or excitement. But it didn't work the way I want. And apart from this tediousness in my work life, there's a big impact, social impact for my life from the people around me. I'm from Sri Lanka, and culture there is entirely different from Canada. Here, no one interferes about your life. But in my country, everyone interferes about everyone's life, except their life. <laughs> so people around you, I mean, some people are actually genuinely concerned. But a lot of people, like friends, relatives, neighbors, they just want to gossip about you. If you're fat, they ask why you're so fat, and why you're eating so much. If you are skinny, you ask, why don't you eat? You are so skinny. If you are not married, they ask, you are getting old. Why don't you get married? And if you are married, they ask, why don't you have a kids? Even if you have pimples in your face, they ask, why you have so much of pimples? You should see a doctor. So you can imagine, right? If you, you can see, I am so skinny since childhood. So people ask, why don't you eat? And this became a big problem to my mom. Because everyone asked, why don't you feed this kid? He is so skinny. You won't believe my mom took me to see three doctors. And doctor said, if kid is healthy, why you are worried about it? 
my dad is skinny like me, so am I. It's a genetic, it's not about having food. So, because of that, since childhood, I used to avoid events and get angry and tell something to defend about myself. If someone says, you are so skinny, just I say something and I get angry. And when I start my job, they were curious about my marriage. In our culture, it says, it's a man-headed culture and it says women always need man protection. Women can't live in a society alone. But I am someone who believes in independence life. If you're not married by 25, they're just curious. <laughs> and if you're not married by 30, it's a, like a crime. And you label as a bad woman. And men's around you trying to approach you to get the undue advantage. So this became a problem for my parents because they think, okay, one day you will be alone. When we are born, after we are gone, who's going to look after you? So, my mom is really anxiety about this. So, all these things make me more frustration about me. So, I was thinking, oh, oh, oh my God, this is my life. I'm going to have my this boring lifestyle for the rest of my life. So, while I'm in the deep frustration, one of my friends, her name is Ranila, she suggests me that, why don't we migrate? Oh, stop migration. It's a big decision. Actually, migration is a big decision because it's where you are finding a new home. So people take time, analyze, gather information, and take the decision. But in my case, I thought, OK, anyway, I'm frustrated there and I'm disappointed. So I told my friend, sure, we will try. So 2014, we tried, sat for the English test to apply for the mig migration. But my friend couldn't get through the enough marks. So finally, I had to apply by myself, leaving her there. And I got my visa on 2015, May 22nd. So that is one of the happiest days in my life, because I feel more confident, because I have option now. I can go to Canada and change my life, or I can stay in Sri Lanka. So I have option in my life. But other side, that day is most hardest day, because my parents didn't know that I apply for PR. Because, I mean, it's, you are not 100% sure about getting visa, right? So I don't want to feel bad from the beginning. I thought, OK, if I get the visa, I will tell them. Otherwise, I keep my mouth shut. So how I'm going to tell them? So which is very hard. When I tell them, they were shocked and silent. I know they were sad, but they didn't discourage me. They said, okay, you will be alone in Toronto. You don't know anyone. But I, we believe you can do that. And as usual, people around me, they just start discouraging me, trying to say that, okay, Canada is other part of the world. Why girl want to go alone there? You don't know anyone. And it's very cold how you are going to sustain. And what about if you can't find a job? You have a decent lifestyle here, etc., etc., etc. I thought, okay, why I miss this chance? Let me go there and try. If I fail, I can come back. My parents is there, so always I can go back. So I came to Canada 2015, July 14. And after three years and four months, I'm standing in front of you, sharing my story as a newcomer who finding a new home in new country. So after coming here, I got what I wanted, like excitement and challenge, something new. Finding a new home in a new country without knowing anyone in this big city is very, really hard. You don't know how many times I get lost in subway because <laughs> I can't figure it out. Northwest is like 
or go to Tim Horton or Starbucks and order food and finding a job without Canadian experience and my pure, poor English, oh, it's very hard. But after three years, I think I'm going to enjoy it and all those things I had, it's like, I feel like I'm brave and now I'm enjoying what Canada has to offer me. And good news is that my sister also came to Canada in May, so now I have some money here which built my new home here. And about my friend who encouraged me to come here, she's very encouraging, actually more encouraging than me. She did that English test few times and she came to Canada last year. And she's in Nova Scotia. It's far, but I'm happy we are in the same country. So finally, we both find a new home in a new country. Thank you, guys. Um, hi, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Um, as Anita mentioned, my name is Robin, and I want to talk to you a little bit about my home. So I am an incredibly fortunate person. I have always had a home. Actually, for most of my life, I've had more than one house. Uh, my parents divorced when I was about a year old, and as they rebuilt their lives, they always had a house for me to live in. There were moments where my housing wasn't exactly typical. I remember around age seven, my sister and I stayed with my grandparents when we were living with my dad. He lived in his office when we weren't with him. But we always had a house. When I was five, my mom, her second husband, my sister and I moved into a rundown apartment um, at the border of Toronto and East York. My sister was a year old, and the four of us moved into the penthouse suite overlooking the Don Valley. The view is fantastic, it's a great space. However, the penthouse apartment was expensive enough that anyone sort of willing to put the rundownness, overlook the rundownness of the apartment wouldn't live there. And those that would live in that building couldn't afford the penthouse suite. Our family made the exception. We moved in. We had a house. I have vague memories of an indoor pool in the building. There was never any water in it. And it smelled, but there was a pool, so it seemed kind of luxurious. <laughs> the elevators broke a lot. So we made a game out of running up 15 flights of stairs. So I've always had a house. We had just moved in when I met Christophe. Christophe lived on the third floor. He had a one bedroom unit with his mom, his dad, his two brothers, his sister, and his grandmother. On Tuesdays, if the weather was warm enough, Christophe and I would meet in the park beside our building. He would bring me baklava and spanakopita and other things that his grandmother had been making throughout the day. But one day he just stopped coming. His family had moved out of the building. I learned later that within the 10 years that they had been living in that building, his family managed to save up enough money to buy a two bedroom house in Scarborough. So now they have a house. Eventually, my stepdad started working on a project that would see our building turn into the last municipally funded co-op housing in Toronto. But when I was seven, Stephen died. Stephen was the man who lived at the end of the hall. He lived alone in a three-bedroom apartment, and he would invite my family over for tea. His bedroom walls were legitimately padded. He had this incredible textured wallpaper with foam on the inside, so you could actually bounce off the walls. It was a childhood like dream. He also installed a full um, wood-burning fireplace in his apartment, which is still there. The whole apartment was this beautiful yellow, and he hand-painted the bathroom into this sort of marble mosaic. 
He was the most glamorous person I have ever met. And I just sort of assumed that he must work for fashion or famous people or royalty. Stephen was the first person that I ever met with AIDS. Stephen died when I was seven. Stephen was my friend, and Stephen had a house. Broadview Housing Co-op was founded in 1994 by the tenants of 1050 Broadview Avenue, who had basically grown tired of a series of irresponsible and absentee landlords who had neglected the building. It was then that the group of tenants banded together and with the help of the Tenants Nonprofit Redevelopment Corporation, which I'm pretty sure is CHFT now, um, our Broadview Housing Co-op was born. The first board members and uh, meetings took place in the summer of 1995. So we had a house. Um, organizing the residents to create the co-op was just one step. In order to make our house a home, we needed some serious investment in the actual building itself. So the residents of 1050 Broadview got together and we invited all three levels of our government representatives to come and tour our building. As we walked them around, we pointed out the elevator that had not functioned in four months for a building of 16 stories. We showed them the laundry room that had one working laundry machine in it for a building with 111 units. We showed them the broken window in the lobby. On the fifth floor, we went into one of the balconies to show them where concrete had actually calved off the side of the building. As we were bidding them all goodbye, they got to witness firsthand as more concrete fell from the building near them, almost hitting our MP in the head. <laughs> so in 1996, a massive renovation began that took 18 months and saw virtually the entire building renovated completely, including a brand new parking garage, a laundry room, and a common room that replaced the space of the infamous pool. I'm still convinced that it's haunted, um, so I don't like going down there. Every suite received new windows, a new kitchen, a new balcony, the work was completed with everyone managing to stay in their apartments. We all had a house. My first memories of Sharon are from when I was about nine, but I know she's lived there since before we turned it into a co-op. Sharon lives with her daughter, her three dogs, and she likes to watch the security footing to see who's coming and going from the building and she'll come down to say hi to the people she likes. She especially comes down to say hi to the people she doesn't like. <laughs> I met Shirley when my sister was about five and was running around the lobby and opened the door and smacked herself in the head so hard she knocked herself out and started beating, bleeding profusely. And this is where Shirley's attentive um, viewing of our lobby security footage was great. She came down, called an ambulance, patched my sister up. Shirley's not able to work, but Shirley has a house. I'm really, really lucky. I've always had a house. In fact, I've always had a home but I live in a building where many families are squeezing eight or nine people into one or two bedroom apartments. I live in a building where my parents spent two or three nights a week on the board of directors, helping resolve disputes, find funding for rent geared to income residents um, who had fallen behind on their rent. There are kids everywhere and smells I didn't recognize and languages I didn't know, and I always had a house. But more importantly, there are dozens of families who have houses, 111 units of them. And these, this, they have houses in a building elsewhere that they might not be able to afford. Some of my neighbors are new to Canada. Some of them are multi-generational uh, multi settlers. They are First Nations people. My neighbors have created a community and a home. 
I don't know if the other kids who lived in my building recognized that they were underhoused. I really hope that they didn't. Um, I hope they felt a part of the same community that I did. But what I do know is that over 25 years that I've lived in the co-op, I've seen dozens of families change their lives and overcome circumstances that I can only begin to imagine. They move out, they buy property, or they stay, and they continue to live in a really supportive community where they get to participate on the gardening board, they get to be on the property committee, they learn leadership skills, or they just have people that live down the street who know them or down the hall that they can talk to. My neighbors share food. Um, as long as I can remember, people have been sharing injera bread and marak stew from Somalia. I've attended D Diwali celebrations and sat shiva. I have been gifted red envelopes for New Year's and fabulous scarves from my gay neighbor upstairs. I had a house. So now that I've let you think about what housing is possible, um, I really want to end by saying co-op housing is a model for mixed income residency that really, really works. Um, we need more land to build these kinds of co-op housing. And so I'm gonna leave you with a little bit of a call to action. Um, we need to build more of these. And we need more land. Would not have been possible without the advocacy towards our elected officials. So today on National Housing Day, I'm gonna ask you to go home, email your elected representatives on all three levels and say, we need more housing, co-op housing works. Let's make sure that everyone can have a house. We all deserve a home. I can still remember the first moment I became homeless. I remember feeling angry, angry at myself for ending up on the streets, for all my failed recovery attempts, and for disappointing everyone that I cared about. That anger soon turned to hopelessness. I found a piece of cardboard in an alleyway, and I laid on the ground. I was 18 years old at the time, and as I lay on that piece of brown cardboard with tears rolling down my face, I thought about how I ended up there. Growing up, I had it all. I had a loving family and all the privileges and opportunities that anyone could ever ask for. I lived in an affluent neighborhood in Toronto and attended private schools across the city. I was totally oblivious to the fact that one day I would experience addiction, mental health, and homelessness. I was a happy kid. I loved riding my bike and making mud pies in my backyard. But in grade one, when I became the victim of bullying, the happiness I once knew as a child disappeared. One of my most vivid memories as a child is of my classmates stealing my boots, stuffing them with snow, and hiding them in the playground. I ran around in my green school stockings, searching for them, while the teacher rang the bell, hollering for me to get in line. This was the first time in my young life that I felt alone as my peers laughed and pointed at me. I felt like there was something wrong with me. Over the next 10 years, I switched schools seven times, each time trying to escape the bullying that just seemed to follow me around the city. When high school began, I tried to reinvent myself. I started to make friends. I even had a boyfriend. I thought maybe the days of being bullied were over. But when my boyfriend raped me, everything changed. I felt so much shame about what happened that I chose not to open up about it. I thought if I pretended it didn't happen, it would all go away. But it didn't go away. Over the next year, I started experimenting with drugs and alcohol. 
I felt confident and strong. I started to skip school in order to get high with my friends, and I began to steal money from my parents to afford my newfound habit. I knew what I was doing was dangerous. My parents had warned me of what drugs could do. But at the time, I didn't care. I was popular. I finally had friends. I might not have been worried, but my parents sure were. At the age of 15, my parents sent me to a rehabilitation center in the United States. It was here I was first diagnosed with mental health and realized what depression and anxiety actually were. I returned to Toronto after a month and I stayed sober for about a year. But all it took was one stressful event to relapse. The next chunk of my life was spent on a cross-country tour of over 12 American treatment centers in a desperate attempt by my parents to save my life. After being away in the US for three years, I returned home. But within a few months, there I was on that piece of cardboard, alone and scared. Despite all the years of treatments, the dozens of doctors who tried to get me to take responsibility for my drug use, I just couldn't live up to the zero tolerance rhetoric we hold of recovery. Every time I dozed off on that piece of cardboard, I woke up startled, disoriented and afraid. The same evening at two in the morning, a police officer poked me awake and told me I couldn't sleep where I was or I'd face getting a ticket. It's illegal to sleep on the streets of Toronto. I left my cardboard bed, wandering the streets by myself. I didn't know how to survive without any money. Within the first 24 hours of being homeless, I was robbed and beaten. I had to learn quickly how to fend for myself. I taught myself how to panhandle. And through this, I learned that if I wanted to make any money, I had to sit on the ground, beneath the passerby. A clear power dynamic became visible, one that I had never experienced until I was homeless myself. Soon, however, I became addicted to crack cocaine. It was the only thing that got me through, moment to moment. A few months later, I learned of a transitional youth shelter that I applied to, and after several weeks, was actually accepted. This was a new beginning. Unlike the places that I had attended in the United States, the shelter wasn't a rehab. It wasn't a therapy center. Instead, I learned how to talk about my feelings. I learned how to make healthy choices on my own. And there was always someone there to help me when I started to fall. The next few months were probably the most rigorous and remarkable of my life. Deciding to quit drugs, well, that's the easy part. But sticking to it, that took supernatural willpower. Slowly, I began to open up to the staff at the shelter and to my roommates. I began to gain a circle of friends, youth who were just like me, lost and looking for their way. I moved out of the shelter 11 months later with a man I was dating, and I enrolled in high school to finish my remaining credits. But soon, the man I loved began to abuse me. Everything that I had worked so hard to achieve, my confidence, my identity, my understanding of good and bad, everything that I had built was broken. The relationship also consumed me the same way drugs used to. I invested everything I had into fixing it, fixing me, fixing him. After several black eyes, hundreds of bruises, and a broken rib, I ended up leaving my abuser at the age of 22. And I went on to graduate high school and went on to study early childhood education at George Brown College and then Ryerson University. I became extremely passionate about advocacy, 
social justice and equity. So much so that when I realized the shelter that I used to live in was in jeopardy of closing its doors for condo development, I mounted a campaign to save it. The campaign took me to City Hall and resulted in a new property and $5 million. Through this experience, I learned that my voice could make a difference. That my story, it could impact other people. I had a second chance to shine. I was able to graduate from both of my post-secondary programs with honors, and I was able to repair my relationship with my parents, returning to a place of trust and respect. But I will always remember that cardboard bed. The memory reminds me of all I've overcome. It keeps me grounded and helps me appreciate the life that I have. The memory reminds me to be aware of the privilege that I hold, and that even with privilege, that one can be oppressed and marginalized. My experiences with addiction, mental health, and homelessness are now experiences that I can talk openly about because by talking about them, I can play a role in reducing the stigmas associated with them. The world we live in marginalizes and stigmatizes people because of those experiences. No one is marginalized because they want to be and nobody is immune from it. Yet we treat those experiencing homelessness and mental health like they're disposable. Why? because it's easier to ignore what's going on than to admit it affects us enough to actually do something about it. Today, I know firsthand the importance of having a place to call home. It's not only a place that provides shelter from the elements, nor is it a place that I lay my head at night, but a home, to me, means having a safe haven, a place where I feel safe and secure no matter the chaos that's going on in the world around me. A home is a place where I do not need to put on an act or a smile but where I can be myself without fear of being hurt or taken advantage of. A home for me is a foundation. It allows me the freedom to spread my wings and fly. But above all, a home is a place that reminds me each and every day of my strength, my perseverance, my hope for the future, both for mine and for our societies. I still catch myself fingering the keys to my front door every now and then and sighing with relief. That key reminds me that I have a place to call home, a place that I can venture out of each day and return to each night with full control of what that space looks like and who I share it with. I spent a decade shuffling between schools, rehab centers, hospitals, pieces of cardboard, and shelters, alienated from my family and unsure of where I belonged. After all of that, it's good to finally be home. Thank you. Subscribe to the Stories We Don't Tell podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about the podcast, blog, and live events, find us on Facebook or visit storieswedonttell.org. This episode of Stories We Don't Tell is brought to you in partnership with Stories We Don't Tell, Center for Social Innovation, Evergreen, and The Discourse. Check them out all in the show post below. Thanks a lot, everyone.